All right, good morning. Let's go ahead and find our places in the Bible. We're in 2 Kings chapter 10. 2 Kings chapter 10. Last week we left off finishing verse 10 going into verse 11. And rather than reviewing all that we did last week, I'll just encourage you if you weren't here or if you weren't able to watch online to go back and review that lesson. And that, I'll say that about every lesson. That helps you to understand what we talk about today without us having to do a lot of unnecessary review. Last week, even though God held back some type of punishment from Jezreel, Jezreel was a city in Israel. Uh, we don't know exactly what it was he held back. What we saw was what he did through Jehu. And the judgment that we saw should be enough to make anybody want to straighten up and fly right. But then again, it's always been the case that man's repentance in the flesh, like what Judah did, repented to himself, man's repentance in the flesh is temporary, it's weak, and it's selfish. The child who says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, while he's being chastened, is not repenting. He's just trying to lessen the severity of his punishment. I know none of you ever did that, but those who are less spiritual than we may have. Or the employee who is about to be fired because he's stolen from his company sometimes says, I'll, I'll pay it back, I'll never do it again. And what's he doing? Is he repenting or is he selfishly trying to keep his job? Probably the latter. Now, it is wonderful when somebody truly repents when they're punished, whether a child or an adult, an employee, whatever it may be. And a truly repentant person, think about the workplace for a moment. A truly repentant person will accept the consequences of his behavior. If his boss says, I'm going to have to terminate you, I can't trust you with my merchandise or with my money, that truly repentant employee will understand. He'll say, well, I, I wish I could keep my job, but I understand. You've, I've done wrong and you haven't, and you're doing what you have to do to keep the integrity of your employees, and I, I'm sorry I did this to you. That's more like a repentant person, isn't it? Someone who's not repenting in the flesh, but a, a spiritually led person. And although some aspect of judgment was withheld, no object of judgment was spared. Some aspect of judgment was withheld from Jezreel, but no object, and those objects were the sons of the house of Ahab and then those associated with them as we'll continue to read. No object of judgment was spared. Every one of the house of Ahab was slain. And as we wrap up this scene of complete judgment on those who were objects of it, let's look at the groups of people who were slain by Jehu and his men. Now look at verse 11. We are in 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 11. So Jehu slew all that remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel, and all his great men and his kinsfolks, and his priests, until he left him none remaining. 
all that remained in the house of Ahab in Jezreel. So there were others of the house of Ahab who lived elsewhere, but the ones in Jezreel did not escape. Not one of them was left alive. And there wasn't partial judgment for any of them either, nor incomplete wrath, but the full measure of it upon the objects of it. Now let's look at these categories of people. First we'll notice all his great men. All his great men. That is the ones whom Ahab and his son Joram held up as great. Now that's where the difference is. Who did Ahab, who did Joram call great men? Friend, the world has its great men. And it seems that almost everyone loves them and admires them, looks up to them. So many fathers have allowed a professional athlete to be held up as their child's hero. Others dress and act and speak like popular musicians or movie stars, holding them up as their idols. These are their great men and women. But in Matthew chapter 23, verses 11 through 12, Matthew 23, 11 through 12, Jesus told us who the great men were. Are you ready? But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whosoever shall exalt himself, that means raise himself up, shall be abased. That means he'll be brought low. And he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. So Jesus said, among them, the servant was the greatest man. Not the movie star, not the popular singer, not the world-class athlete, but the servant. And he said, the humble will be the greatest. Brother Fulton and I were recently talking about our dear sister Leah St. John. And I mentioned to him that she had such a God-given talent for music. And she could have made lots of money in the country music world, I promise you. But by God's grace, rather than exalt herself in the eyes of the world... She's humbled herself not to seek greatness and gain in the eyes of the world, the secular world, but instead to devote her God-given talents to singing praises to her Lord. There's not much money in that, is there, sister? There's not much money in that. Oh, you, if you did it full-time, you could make a living a little bit, and maybe some have made a greater living than others. But that's not why somebody who wants to sing to the Lord gets in that in the first place. You know how much I pay our choir? You'd be shocked. Not a dime. I pay attention to them, but that's the only payment they get from me. Because they've humbled themselves, as have anyone else who have sung in this church, have humbled themselves to seek God's approval with the praise of their music. If the greatest... Men and women in your life 
are those people who receive a lot of worldly admiration, then you really don't have any great men or women at all. Or if you do, you don't recognize them for what they are. Because the great men or women will be humbled. They'll humble themselves. They won't exalt themselves. The exalted, the ones who are self-exalted, don't seek the praise of God. They seek the praise of men. They're not real concerned about whether God's happy with what they're doing. It doesn't really cross their mind. They want the likes, the follows, the, the purchase tickets, the albums bought, the movies watched, the autographs, all of those things. And I'll tell you who the greatest men and women should be in your lives. Godly parents and godly friends. And I don't care what they do for a living, how they look, where they're from, how much stuff they have. Because godly people, the truly great men and women of this world, come in all shapes and sizes and careers nationalities and personalities but because godly men were not among the great men in Ahab's house in the house of Ahab those great men were executed they weren't great in God's sight another group of people who were killed in judgment were it says his kinfolks his kinfolks, that is, those who remained in the house of Ahab in Jezreel, all his great men and his kinsfolks. Now, we normally think of kinfolks as our family member, and they certainly are. But the word in the Hebrew means to know, so it's a little broader than that. What did Jesus say about a man's family when it comes to the execution of his wrath? Did he say they will be spared because we are righteous? Will my uncle or my cousin or my daughter or whoever it may be be spared from God's wrath if they're lost because I'm righteous through Jesus? No. I didn't die on the cross for them. Jesus did. They don't need to accept me. They need to accept him. And you know, this is a question some people struggle with. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 36. Matthew 10, 34 through 36. Jesus said, Think not that I am come to send peace on the earth. I came not to send peace. Now he's talking about that worldly peace. But a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes, or his enemies, shall be they of his own household, his kinsfolks. Jesus said the world wants this peace, the kind of peace that Jehu rejected, the kind of peace those two horsemen came to him seeking, the kind of peace Ahaziah wanted with him. And Jehu said, you guys don't know what peace is. You don't know what righteousness is. And that's the kind of peace Jesus said, I didn't come to bring that. I didn't come here to cause everybody to get along and all of those things. I came to bring a sword. And do we know what the sword is? The Bible says the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. So His Word 
is what sets people at variance. Jesus doesn't get a thrill in watching a mother and a daughter argue. In fact, the daughter should honor her mother. If the daughter is saved and the mother is lost, she should still honor her mother. She doesn't have to believe like her mother, and she shouldn't, but she should still love her mother and honor her because of her position. So Jesus didn't say, I came to make everybody argue. He said, I brought a sword. And he knows what that sword does. It cuts right down the middle with nothing left under the blade. And it separates the wheat and the chaff, the believers and the unbelievers, the sheep and the goats. So how about that? People in your own household will, in many cases, be your enemies when it comes to the righteousness of Christ, the word of God, the sword that he brings in judgment. And just as Jehu killed the kinsfolk of the house of Ahab, so will the kinsfolk of many be on the receiving end of the wrath of God. And yes, that makes me sad too. I don't like saying it, but it's true. But God is righteous. And if our own loved ones and acquaintances will reject the one who loves them more than even we can, then they cannot hope to be saved. Their love for us will not substitute for their love for God and his truth. If one of my kinsfolk says, Andy, I love you with all my heart, but, but, but I'm not, I don't believe in what you believe in concerning the Bible. I don't believe Jesus is the only way. I think that's cruel. I think that's narrow-minded. People, if somebody were to say that to me, I'd say, you know, I love you too. But my love for you and your love for me cannot overcome your unbelief in the gospel. I believe many of our unspoken prayer requests are for those, I know they are for me, for those who have set themselves against God. And even though we love them dearly, they've made themselves our foes over the truth of God's word. That's why it's hard for us to talk about it. And don't expect you to. For somebody to say, you know, my twin brother I grew up with, or my son, or my mother, or whoever it may be, is lost, and they uh, hate God, and they don't want to hear the gospel, and I'm afraid they're going to die and go to hell. You couldn't get through that without shedding tears on Wednesday night. So we say, I have an unspoken request. That doesn't mean anybody's never heard anybody's ever never heard about it. It means that I'm not going to speak it tonight. God knows what it is, and He's the only one who can answer it. And that's why we hand those to, to Him. And I believe many of them are for that reason. We shed tears over them. Sometimes we get angry with them, don't we? We preach to them. And above all, we pray for them. And how sad it is that the kinfolks of the house of Ahab were so evil that God had Jehu execute them in judgment. Notice another group that were killed in this wrath. It says it there at the end of verse 11, and his priests, his priests, his religious leaders. Well, we know Ahab and Jezebel worshipped at the church of the golden calf if you remember back that far in 
our study. They were idolaters, and so were their children. They're great men, and they're religious leaders, the priests. They were all idolaters. If I were to tell a Catholic today that his priest will be condemned to the lake of fire forever because he doesn't believe solely on the finished work of Jesus Christ, then I would probably be ridiculed in such a church. I know I would. I'd be thrown out of the church, maybe even in some parts of the world, beaten to death for saying something like that. But you know the fact that a man calls himself a priest does nothing for him or his followers. It doesn't matter what he calls himself. In Hebrews chapter 5, the writer of Hebrews was teaching about the Old Testament priesthood in order to help the reader understand the New Testament priesthood of Jesus Christ. And in chapter 5 of Hebrews, verses 1 through 4, verses 1 through 4, here's what the writer wrote. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God. Don't forget that phrase that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. And by reason hereof he ought, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer for sins. And no man, listen to this, and no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. Now, did Aaron self-appoint? Nope, God appointed him. He said, you're the high priest, and your sons and their sons after them. In that text, we're told that the priests in the Old Testament were ordained for things pertaining to God. Now, how do you know what pertains to God? You have to see what his word says. That's the only way you'll know. You don't come up with your own ideas. And the things that pertain to God, according to that text, were that the priest should have compassion on the ignorant and those out of the way. That he too was a sinner who needed a sacrifice. And look what. Verse 4 says about that priest, And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. You know, the priests who ministered in the Old Testament, from Aaron all the way down to these priests who ministered to Ahab's household, were all worthy of judgment. All of them, they were all sinners. But these priests in the house of Ahab did not minister according to the things of God, or God wouldn't have destroyed them. In fact, they didn't have compassion on their ignorant fellow Israelites. They should have taught them the scriptures. They should have shown them the way of life. 
They should have pointed to the sacrifices in the Old Testament that pointed to Jesus who would one day come and fulfill all of those. You know, today's self-appointed and man-approved priests are the same way. They have not and they do not have compassion upon the ignorant or those out of the way. Because they've pointed lost sinners not to the cross, but to their own works, to the works of the church, to the confession booth, to the baptistry, to the sinner's prayer, to all things other than the cross. They've pointed to the works of man rather than the works of Christ. They've made the religion of Cain their master, and so have their followers. I had a good question asked by a member uh, recently about the religion of Cain to just remind that person or explain to that person what that was. Hey, the religion of Cain is easy to understand. It's any religion that points someone away from the blood sacrifice that Jesus made. Abel brought blood. It was accepted by the Lord. Cain brought the fruit of the ground. God rejected it. Just like he does all religions that don't trust in what Jesus did. And you know, today's and yesterday's ministers of unrighteousness, like these priests, are going to be on the business end of God's wrath. Just like the priests of Ahab's house were on the business end of Jehu's wrath. And it says in the end of verse 11, if you'll look back in your text, until he left him none remaining. This will be the lot of the unbeliever. And then he will know that God is a God of righteous judgment. You know, Jesus said there will appear many at that judgment throne who will say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and cast out devils in thy name and done many wonderful works in thy name? And Jesus said, I will profess to them, I never knew you. We don't have a relationship. All of that you did was for you and for man. God's word will not return void. It will accomplish the purpose whereunto he sent it. And the gospel of Jesus Christ that that unbeliever heard and dismissed will also leave him none remaining. Because he rejected its saving power. All of his pleas and all of his cries and his excellency and all of the things that he said he did in the name of Jesus to replace believing on the name of Jesus. They won't avail him anything. Verse 12, And he arose and departed and came to Samaria. Now remember, Samaria is another name for the northern kingdom, Israel, but it's also a city in that northern kingdom. So he came to the city of, of Samaria because he was already in the country of Samaria. And this is Jehu. And it says, and he was at the shearing house in the way. Now there is a, a Hebrew city, or there was then, probably more uh, accurately called a town or a village. It was called Beth Aked. 
if I said it right. And that's the shearing, shepherd's shearing house. So that's why it's translated a shearing house here. Other translations have the actual name of the town. That's where he was. We get a pretty good idea of what happened at the shearing house. Sheep were shorn, weren't they? Sheep were shorn. I won't say it again because I'll mess it up. Verse 13, Jehu met with the brethren of Ahaziah, king of Judah. Remember, he was one who partnered with Joram, king of Israel, and they came out in their chariots against Jehu, and Jehu had them both killed. Ahaziah was the one who came out and said, Is it peace? (laughs) No, not the kind that you want. So it says, Jehu met with the brethren of Ahaziah, king of Judah, and said, Who are ye? And they answered, We are the brethren of Ahaziah, and we go down to salute the children of the king and the children of the queen. Of all the places that Jehu met these admirers of Ahab and Jezebel's children, a shearing house. You'll find out in a moment why that was quite a convenient place for him to meet them. These brethren of Ahaziah had traveled from Judah, the southern kingdom, to salute, that's our word, to salute these children of Joram, who was the son of Ahab and Jezebel. So they're part of the household of Jezebel, or of Ahab. Now these brethren of Ahaziah apparently didn't know that the children of the king and queen had been wiped out in Jezreel. Did you know the Hebrew word for the word salute there at the end of verse 13? The Hebrew word for that is shalom. It means peace. That's how we normally think of it. If you know a little Hebrew, you know shalom is peace. It is a familiar greeting as well. Peace. And where have we seen that before? When King Joram sent a horseman to ask Jehu, is it peace? When King Joram himself asked Jehu, is it peace? The word shalom was the same word used for peace, and it's used for the word salute in our text. So it's the same thing. And if we've learned anything about Jehu, we've learned he is not a fan of anyone who comes in the name of or for the purpose of peace when it's not the peace of the Lord. When it's that worldly peace that Jesus said, I didn't come to bring that. And what Ahaziah's brethren told Jehu right here was that they were going to salute or be at peace with the children of the king and queen. And if you don't understand that, then you might think the actions in the next verse were cruel and vicious rather than righteous. Verse 14, and he, that's Jehu, said, take them alive. And they took them alive and slew them at the pit of the shearing house, even two and forty men. Neither left he any of them. Take them alive or seize them which implied don't kill them right here in the shearing house. Don't slay them and shed their blood here. Instead, these new prisoners were taken to the pit of the shearing house. That's a, like a well or even a cistern. It's a hole in the ground where you throw dead things, and in this case, dead bodies. 
And rather than shed their blood where the sheep were sheared, they were killed at the pit of the shearing house. And we might reasonably presume, I think, that they were thrown into the pit after they were killed. Now, what would the worldly man say about this event? If he just read this without knowing anything else, he read this part of the chapter, he might say, why, uh, that's cruel. Well, that's unnecessary. Well, how could a loving God allow something like that? That's what the world asks. But do you know that same worldly man, if his house were broken into by a burglar, would wish that the burglar were caught and arrested and punished? That same worldly man would probably agree that at some point you have to fire a thief from working at your business. But he sees the death of Christ differently than God. You know, worldly people, lost people, see the death of Jesus Christ differently than God does. The worldly man doesn't accept the righteousness of Christ. And such an act here as Jehu committed, they would say, well, that's not righteous. Why, these men were just going to to visit the king and the queen's children. They weren't doing any harm. You know, I don't wish someone would come along and take my life. I don't. However, if or when it happens, do you know what's still true? The wages of sin is death. Every one of us are going to die. And my hope is not in being spared from death of this body but instead of being spared from eternal death, separation from God. And I have that hope. That hope is not a nebulous, maybe it'll happen. That is a joyful anticipation of a reality. That's what the word hope means in the Greek language, and that's what I have because of what Jesus did. I understand that though wicked men crucified Jesus, it was in God's providence in his plan in his foreknowledge, in his predestination, in every way going to happen so that sinners could have eternal life, so we could be pardoned from our sins and not just avoid hell and the lake of fire, but be reunited with our God in the way he intended before sin entered into the garden. That's the peace that we have who are believers. And these brethren of Ahaziah on the other hand, had peace with the wicked children of the king and the queen. They said, we're going to salute them. In other words, we have peace with them. And rather than rebuking the evil, they wanted to make peace with these evildoers. And God judged them at the pit through Jehu's righteous act. Simple as that. Verse 15, And when he was departed thence, he lighted on Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him, and saluted him and said to him, Is thine heart right as my heart is with thy heart? And Jehonadab answered, It is. If it be, now this is Jehu speaking, If it be, give me thine hand. And he gave him his hand, and he took him up into the chariot. Now the pronouns there are a little confusing, so we'll get to those in a moment. But go back to the first part of the verse. It says that Jehu lighted on Jehonadab. That means he found him. And Jehonadab was a Rechabite. 
Now, you may not independently recall, unless you have a really good memory, but we studied the Rechabites. If you were here for the book of Jeremiah, I know uh, Nelda was. She was here for all of it. The book of Jeremiah, which pertained to events about 300 years after the time we're reading about. And in Jeremiah chapter 35... God told Jeremiah to test this group of Rechabites. And the way he did it was by telling Jeremiah to bring those Rechabites into the house of the Lord and give them wine to drink. And these Rechabites refused to drink that wine because Jonadab in his day, the guy we're reading about right here, in his day, had commanded his sons not to. He said, do not drink wine or strong drink. In fact, here's the, the quote from these men, these sons who lived some 300 years after Jehonadab. In Jeremiah 35, this is verses 6 through 7. So this is after Jeremiah offered the wine, and it says, But they said, We will drink no wine. For Jonadab, which is the same as Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, saying, Ye shall drink no wine, neither ye nor your sons forever. Neither shall ye build house, nor sow seed, nor plant vineyard, nor have any. But all your days ye shall dwell in tents, that ye may live many days in the land where ye be strangers." What did he tell them in so many words? Be sober and be humble the rest of your lives. Now listen to God's testimony about these same Rechabites as written by Jeremiah a few verses later there in chapter 35, verses 12 through 14. Chapter 35, verses 12 through 14. Now this is the Lord's testimony about the sons of Rechab who had obeyed a commandment given to them about 300 years before. Listen to what God said. Then came the word of the Lord unto Jeremiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Go and tell the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Will ye not receive instruction to hearken to my word, saith the Lord? God was upset with Judah and Jerusalem. The words of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, that he commanded his sons not to drink wine, are performed. They did what he, they were told. For unto this day they drink none but obey their father's commandment. Notwithstanding, I have spoken unto you, now he's talking to Judah again, rising early and speaking, but ye hearken not unto me. God used the testimony of the sons of Rechab, who for after 300 years had still obeyed the original command their father, Jonadab, in our text, gave them to not drink, drink wine and those other things. But God said, to this day they obey their father's commandments. Boy, that'd save a whole lot of heartache in this world, wouldn't it? When a father tells his children, don't ever touch that stuff. Get away from it. Don't drink it. Don't try it. Don't hang out with somebody who's doing it. Boy, that'd save a lot of trouble, heartache, and what people call untimely death. 
and sickness and money and property damage and all these other things. God testified these young men were obedient. In fact, these were great young men in the sight of the Lord, but what were they? They were humble. They didn't have the big houses and the big fields and all the riches and so forth. God testified about them that they were obedient. They passed the test. And Jonadab, who here is called Jehonadab, again, the same fellow, gave them a command. And 300 years later, his sons are still obeying it. This is the guy who Jehu met in the way, who he's talking to. And it says in the text that he saluted him back in verse 15 that Jehu saluted him. Now, the word saluted here is a little bit different. It's the Hebrew word Barak, not the president. Barak, and it means blessed or blessed. It's a little different word than shalom, which is also translated saluted, but it really abides by the same principle, if you think about it. Is thine heart right as my heart is with thy heart? So when Jehu says this in verse 15... He's asking Jonadab, is your heart right with my heart like mine is with yours? So that implies that Jehu's heart is already right. And he knows of Jehonadab's righteousness because he either knew him or he heard about his testimony. And the word right here means upright. It means straight. Jehu wanted to know about Jehonadab. Are you straight with me like I am with you? Are we both straight? But in order for either one of them to know whether the other one was right or straight, there had to be a common standard by which their uprightness might be measured. Was their standard the customs and traditions of men? Couldn't be, because those change, don't they? From day to day sometimes, and county to county, and country to country. Was their standard the moral relativism of that day? That is, situational ethics. Just, well, uh, for this situation, I think it's okay to steal, but for this situation, I don't. Or was it? The preferences of one tribe over the other when it comes to uprightness. Who's been around the longest? Who's the richest? Who's the most popular? Why, with those measuring sticks, the definition of right and straight would always be changing, wouldn't it? We never would get it. What does it mean to be straight? Well, that certainly depends on what your definition is based upon, what your standard is. And boy, is this world full of new words and new definitions for old words. Drives me crazy. Imagine if I had a crooked piece of wood that was three feet long. And I used that crooked piece of wood to see whether a two-by-four was straight. Now, if I did that, a truly straight two-by-four would always look crooked to me, wouldn't it? Because I've got the wrong yardstick. And yet the worldly person today still believes that the crooked yardstick is straight. 
And this distorted reasoning is how we get the absolute moral depravity we have in the world today, and it's getting worse. When I was growing up, and I still hold this truth, a person who was straight was also right. If they were straight on something, that meant they were right on something. Boys like girls and girls like boys. And if a boy liked a girl, he was straight in that respect. But if he liked another boy in that same way, he wasn't straight. He was perverted. I just read an article a couple of days ago about a Vermont high school sports team. Pass out a lot of tracks when y'all go up there, sister. <laughs> if you're going to Vermont. About a Vermont high school sports team, a girls team, who was being forced to allow a transgender, a girly boy, to not only be on their team, on the girls' volleyball team, but to use their locker room while they were in there. And all ten of the girls spoke out about it, and as a result, they were placed under investigation by their school for harassment, and they were barred from using their own locker room. Now, how does that happen? Because society accepted the use of a crooked yardstick to determine what was straight. That's how. What was upright, as our text indicates. And friend, this is one of the reasons we are so particular. And when I say we, I mean the pastor and me, but I think it's y'all too. Are so particular about what is taught in this church. And I mean from our littlest ones to our eldest. It doesn't matter who you are. If you're here, you're getting taught something. And we want it to be straight. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1 and verse 23, Gospel of John, which was written by the Apostle John, verse 23, he quotes John the Baptist. And John the Baptist said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Now, you know what his cry was? Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. Now, the world says there are many ways. The world holds that crooked yardstick up and says, this will work. But there's only one straight way. It's the way that John the Baptist taught. In Matthew 7, verse 14, Matthew 7, verse 14, Jesus said, now he uses the word straight, it's a little different word, because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, but few, and few there be that find it. But the world says the gate's wide, don't they? And that the way is broad. That there are many ways, but there's not. There's one narrow way. There's one straight way. There's one straight gate. And Jehu asked Jehonadab if his heart was right, if it was straight, if it was upright like Jehu's was. And Jehonadab answered, it is. Not only did Jehu know of Jehonadab's standard for uprightness, but Jehonadab knew Jehu's standard for uprightness. They both had the same standard for what was right. If you wonder how we can be in fellowship, in agreement with people who live halfway across the world, who in this lifetime we will probably never see in the flesh, it's because we have the same standard they do and they have the same standard we do. 
We don't have to argue about what seems right and what seems wrong. We just say, hey, what does the Bible say about that? Well, if that's what it says, that's the straight yardstick we're looking for. And that's what we're going to go by. He said, if it be, give me thine hand. Now, although we're not told who said that there in verse 15, it appears to be Jehu as the one who said it. If it be, that is, when Jehonadab said it is, that is, my heart's right with yours like yours is with mine, it appears to be Jehu who said, well, if it is, give me your hand. And he gave him his hand, and he took him up into the chariot. So if you put all that together, it would only make sense that it was Jehonadab who reached out his hand and Jehu who pulled him up in the chariot. Jehu was the one in his own chariot because they had the same, same standard for what was straight, for what was right. And we're going to stop right there and come back next week, Lord willing, and finish off that verse and go into verse 16. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for your word and for the good attention of those who came and who tuned in online. And Father, we know that the Spirit of God is the one who teaches us the word of God. And that man is just an instrument you've chosen to employ in that effort. And Father, if we're not led by the Spirit when we teach, and if our standard is not the word of God, then all we've done is speak empty, vain words into the air that are confusing and not enlightening. So I pray today, Lord, that as the truth has been taught, so it's been received, and that we'll believe it, we'll meditate upon it daily, and act in faith upon it as we live out this Christian life. In Jesus' name, amen.